uh, what will be, I think, three weeks worth of thinking about this character named Samson in Judges 13 through 16. It's one of the most famous characters in the Bible, I think, um, partly because if his story were made into a movie, it would be a quite uh, interesting movie. It would go quite well right into the action and adventure section at Blockbuster. Uh, It's just like the action movies that we have today. Really, there are, as we read along, racy romantic scenes. There are uh, events of deceit and revenge. There are heroic individual achievements. There's a moment in the story where everything seems lost and then at the end a great turnabout where everything seems right again. Just like the movies, really. Uh, And it's just like the movies in another way, I think, um, because so many of today's stories, whether they be books or movies, uh, you can read or watch the story and at the end of the movie not be sure whether you should love the protagonist or hate him. Not be sure whether you should love him as a hero or hate him as a scoundrel. Uh, So it's that way with Samson. When we read about him in Delilah's bed, we may be angry or disgusted by him. But when we get to the end of the story and he's had his eyes gouged out and he's in Dagon's temple praying that the Lord would give him strength one last time, we find ourselves cheering for him. It's kind of like, for me, uh, the Phantom of the Opera. I'm somewhat uncultured, and so I only saw that two years ago when it was here in Cincinnati. And I left the theater and I said to Toby, it's really strange because the Phantom is a murderer. He's a really bad guy. He's a manipulator. And yet I'm walking out of this theater feeling sorry for him and and kind of wanting him to win in the end and that's the way it is with Samson he's a scoundrel and yet he's also a hero it's quite an interesting story I think by the end of chapter 16 uh, we will be asking the question is Samson a hero to be admired or is his life a warning to be heeded or maybe is it a little bit of both we can think about those things as we move along the next three weeks But at any rate, he's quite an interesting character simply because of these polar extremes. That's what makes him one of the most memorable characters in the Bible. In fact, you could test it out tomorrow at work or school and say to your co-worker or your classmate, hey, are you familiar with the biblical story of Samson? And most of them uh, won't be really familiar. They won't be able to tell you some of the things you're going to read tonight. But I bet most of them will at least know, yeah, he's the guy that was really strong, right? And he had really long hair. And that's what made him strong. Now, that's... Uh, a bit of a misunderstanding, but most people know this story. It's an amazing story. It's an adventure story. But the story, as we're going to find out now, doesn't start with action or adventure. The story of Samson and all that's going to happen after him actually begins on a normal day in a little backwater town called Zora in central Israel. And it doesn't start with Samson itself, himself. It starts with his mother, apparently out doing her washing or tending to her garden, just minding her own business when something amazing happens to her. And that's how we begin Judges 13. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. 
Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, what I want to do tonight is just walk you through this story, kind of dividing it up into five sections, five thoughts that I hope will be helpful to you and practical to you, both as you try to remember the story as a whole and as you try to apply these things to your own life. First, I want you to notice that this is a story of unsought deliverance, unsought deliverance. Now, thus far in Judges, we've been noting every single week almost a pattern. Namely, the Israelites rebel against the Lord. God sells them into the hands of their enemies. The Israelites eventually cry out to the Lord 
And when they cry out, God raises up a deliverer for them, a judge. That's why the book is called Judges. The deliverers were known by that title. They rebel. God sells them to their enemies. They cry to the Lord and God rescues them through a deliverer. We noted last week that the pattern was broken in that the people rebelled. God sold them into the hands of their enemies. The people cried out and God said, if you're going to worship these false gods, why don't you go and pray to them? So the pattern was broken in an odd sort of way in the previous story. But tonight it's broken again in a different sort of way. When you read verse 1, you see that the pattern begins like normal. The Israelites, as usual, rebel. Now the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again did evil in the sight of the Lord, it says. So they rebel, and like always, God sells them into the hands of their enemies, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. So far, same pattern. But... Things diverge from here. There is no indication given either in chapter 13 or in the chapters that follow 14, 15 and 16 that the Israelites ever cried to the Lord. Every other time until now, when they rebelled and God sold them into the hands of their enemy, they cried out and God delivered them, except once when he waited a while before he delivered them. But every time they cried out now. They sin against the Lord. He sells them into the hands of the Philistines. They serve the Philistines 40 years and they never cry out to the Lord. They've completely given up on that route. And yet, though they didn't cry out to the Lord, though they didn't seek him, God sent them a deliverer. That's the point of this passage. It's telling us how it is that God sent salvation, rescue through a little boy who grew into a man named Samson. God sent them a deliverer, and we'll see him deliver them in, verse, in chapters 14 through 16. But it was an unsought deliverance, one that they never asked for, one that they never prayed for. It reminds me that God so often worked this way in the Old Testament. Isaiah, the prophet, summarized this gracious manifestation of God's kindness, this unsought deliverance that he so often gave his people in Isaiah 65, 1, when God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says, I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation which did not call on my name. Isn't that what happens here? God permits himself to be found by people who don't seek him. He raises his hand and says, hey, I'm over here. I will deliver you even though you didn't call on my name. That's what's happening in this story. And it reminds me that this is the way God deals with us, isn't it? God deals with us the very same way. He permits himself to be found by those who don't seek him. I wonder how often you could go back and recount times that God has blessed you. Maybe in a project at work. Maybe in some other endeavor in your home. Maybe in a lesson that you taught or a witnessing opportunity that you had, you could go back and think of times when God has obviously clearly blessed you, even though you didn't pray or even though you didn't pray as you should. God is merciful in this way. And I'm reminded even more so that this is the way that God deals with us, not just in business opportunities or witnessing opportunities, but this is the way God has dealt with our souls in the matter of eternal salvation. We could quote Isaiah 65.1 about ourselves, that God has said to us, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on His name. 
If you think it out, you'll recognize that it's true. Before you ever realized you needed a Savior, yes, even before you were born, God sent His Son to be the propitiation for your sins. He allowed Himself to be found by those who did not seek Him. And not only did God send His Son before you sought Him, but before you ever called on the name of the Lord, the Lord was calling your name. Maybe it was through a faithful friend who wouldn't leave you alone. Maybe it was through a painful event in your life or in the culture. Maybe it was just because you had an upbringing where your parents taught you about Christ and God called your name through them. Maybe it was like David Irwin who was driving along one day perfectly content with all of his kids and his Roman Catholicism and flipping through the radio station trying to find something to listen to and he landed on a preacher who was preaching the gospel and he sat there and listened because it was interesting and before it was all over, God changed him and he believed in Jesus. All sorts of ways that God deals with us like he dealt with these Israelites, permitting himself to be found by those who did not Seek Him. What's your story? All of us have a story if we trace it back far enough to say, yeah, when I came to Christ, I can look back and see that God was calling my name before I called His name. That's why we sung I'm Forever Grateful tonight. Because it sums it up perfectly. You didn't wait for me to draw near to you, but first you clothed yourself in frail humanity. You became man. You walked among us. You laid down your life for us. When we weren't looking for you and you didn't wait for me to cry out to you, but you let me hear your voice calling me. That's how God works. That's how he worked with these people in Israel. Romans 3.11 says there is none who seeks for God. But Isaiah 65.1 reminds us that he permits himself to be found by those who did not seek him. This is a story unlike any of the other stories in Judges. An unsought, unprayed for deliverance. It's also the story of an unexpected visitor. An unexpected visitor. We saw that and it was quite obvious to us in verses 2 and 3. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then, out of nowhere... No warning for this. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. It's kind of a a strange thing. He only gives us two verses worth of the story. He sets the scene for us and then the angel of the Lord appears. Now in heaven, God had been planning this for eternity. Planning to rescue his people. But here in Manoah's life and in his wife's life, who's never named in this story, by the way, God, through the angel of the Lord, just appears an unexpected visitor. It's along the same lines as the previous point. When we read this, we're not given any indication that Manoah's wife was praying when the angel met her or that she was on some sort of spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, giving her offerings or that she had ever even prayed for a baby. None of that is mentioned. If she had, it probably would be. It's not the most important point, but it would seem that she was going just about her normal routine. Maybe she was hanging her clothes on the clothesline. Maybe she was breaking her bread, or baking her bread. And all of a sudden, God breaks into her life unexpectedly with a wonderful promise. Behold, now you are barren, verse 3, and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. 
Just another example of how good God is to us, how he surprises us with his grace. It's a word I've been thinking of lately about God's grace. So often God surprises us with how good he is to us, blesses us when we aren't expecting it. Ephesians 3.20 says he is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. Even when we are asking God for blessings, he is able to give beyond what we ask and beyond what we can even imagine. Matthew 6.8 that I quoted earlier tonight says he, our heavenly father, knows what we need before we ask him. And many times we don't ask him or we don't know what to ask him. And his blessings so often like it did for Manoah's wife catch us by surprise. We can all point to evidence of that in our own lives. Again, times when God has blessed us when we didn't even know we needed blessing. And again, all of us can point to this truth, not least of all in our salvation experience. Especially if you didn't grow up in a Christian family. I was reading a sermon recently by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I quoted him last week. I quote him again this week. Uh, And he says basically this. Some of you tonight are sitting here, and if you really thought about the course of your life and thought about where you were and where you are, you would be surprised at yourself that you're sitting in a church service. And some of you could think back to a time in your life where this is the last place you ever thought you'd be, sitting in a church service, listening to somebody talk about some guy named Manoah and his wife and some angel that showed up. It's the last place you thought you would be. So often, the fact that we are believers just surprises us. And if we understand God's grace and how little we deserve it, it would surprise us even if we were brought up in a Christian home. An unexpected visitor showed up and blessed this woman in ways that she could have never imagined or asked for. Now, I've noted the unexpectedness of the visitor. Just briefly, let me point out the visitor himself. Verse 3a tells us that he was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. The title of the angel of the Lord for some of you may ring a bell and you're going, okay, I know what this is about. For some of you, you may just be going, okay, the angel of the Lord. Great. Some God sent an angel. But I want you to notice that Manoah and his wife weren't quite sure who it was. He never said, hey, I'm the angel of the Lord. So they weren't quite sure who he was. In verse 6, Manoah's wife simply calls him a man of God. She says, he looked like the angel of the Lord. He was very awesome in his appearance, but I didn't ask him where he was from, and I didn't ask him what his name was, so I'm not really sure who he was. And then in verse 18, Manoah's the same way. He says, hey, what's your name? Verse 17, excuse me. What is your name? Who are you? They weren't sure who he was. The, the passage constantly tells us who he is, but we're like the people who are watching the movie and we know who done it before the people in the movie know who done it. We know who this is and they don't. And so when Manoah finally asks, who are you? What's your name? He gets what I think must have been a startling answer to him. Manoah said to the angel, verse 17, what is your name so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Seeing it is beyond knowing is really what is being said there. What's your name? You wouldn't understand if I told you. Well, if that didn't surprise Manoah enough, 
He continues to follow through with his plan to offer an offering to the Lord. He still doesn't know who this man is, perhaps just some strange character. But if his answer, my name is wonderful, my name is beyond knowing, you wouldn't understand if I told you. If that didn't surprise him enough, the angel's behavior must have really floored him in verses 19 and 20. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now they're understanding that something supernatural is going on here. And then in verses 21 and 22, they finally realized that the angel of the Lord was the Lord himself. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And who's the angel of the Lord? Verse 22. So Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. They didn't know who he was. Then they realized that he was some sort of supernatural being. And then when he went up in the flame to heaven, they said, Aha, now we know who this is. This is none other than the angel of the Lord. And then Manoah lets us in in his comment to his wife on who the angel of the Lord is. The angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. Now we're going to come back in a moment and consider Manoah's response and his wife's response of falling down on the ground when they realized that this was God. We'll come back to that. But for now, I just want to point out to you uh, and this may be a helpful hint to you as you read the Old Testament, that almost always when you're reading the Old Testament and you come across this title, the angel of the Lord, it's referring to the Lord himself. If it's the angel Gabriel or the angel Michael, they are named. But if the angel, if the messenger is called the angel of the Lord, you always find that it's actually the Lord himself. And the passage usually makes that clear to you as it does here. In Exodus 3, you find that. Moses is walking along and he sees a bush that's burning, which might not have been all that odd in the desert. But the odd thing was is that the bush is burning and it didn't just disintegrate and burn up. And so he comes closer and what does it say? It says, the angel of the Lord spoke to him from the bush. And then the story goes on and lets us know that the person speaking from the bush was the Lord himself. But he's called the angel of the Lord. Same thing in Numbers 22. Balaam's riding along on his donkey. He doesn't know yet that it's about to be a talking donkey. But he's riding along and the angel of the Lord is in the path ready to strike him down. And the donkey sees the angel and he doesn't see it. And the donkey stops and goes to the side. And finally he's beaten up on his donkey. And then God allows him to see. And it's, it's the angel of the Lord. But as the story goes on, again, we find that Balaam says, I've seen the Lord himself. Same thing we saw in Judges 6. Gideon's in his threshing floor working. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and then he realizes that it's the Lord himself. It's always this way in the Old Testament. So that's a helpful hint to you as you're reading the Old Testament. But again, the point here is this. Manoah's wife is going about her daily routine, minding her own business, and God breaks into her life. An unexpected visitor. And the unexpected visitor comes with an unbelievable promise. That's the third point. An unbelievable promise in verse 3. Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. You are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. That's an unbelievable promise. 
The word barren is really important here. They mention in verse 2 that she's barren, and then the angel mentions in verse 3 that she's barren. Barren. The situation here is not that she and Manoah were probably a young couple and they'd been married a few years and just hadn't had any kids yet, and they weren't really sure why that was, but it just didn't happen. For instance, when Toby and I moved to Cincinnati, we had been married for four years and had never had a child. And we started to kind of wonder, are we ever going to have children? But we wouldn't have walked around saying, we're barren. They were 25 years old, we've been married for four years, and we haven't had any children, and so we just we know that we can't have children. That wasn't the case. When the Bible says Manoah's wife was barren, what it means is either because of some known physical defect that either she or Manoah had, or because of years and years and years of experience, they knew that she was unable to have children doesn't tell us how old she was, whether she was child uh, in childbearing years or not, but it does tell us that she and her husband knew that apart from a miracle, they weren't going to have a baby. That makes this an unbelievable promise. We are going to have a baby. We've tried for years. We have this particular defect that we know is there that should obviously prevent us from having a baby. And you're telling me that we're going to have a baby. Yes. It's an unbelievable promise. But I want you to notice that Manoah and his wife, though the promise seemed unbelievable, believed. Manoah and his wife believed. Notice verse 6. After the promise came and the angel disappeared, Mrs. Manoah didn't shrug off the visitor and say to herself, I just thought I saw an angel. I've got to have a nap. I really haven't had enough rest. No. What did she do? She ran and told her husband. She didn't run and tell him like, oh, this crazy dream I had. You wouldn't believe it. Uh, but, But don't worry about it. It was just something that I kind of daydreamed. No, she went and told her husband because she wanted him to know the good news. She believed what the angel said. Oh, it was unbelievable. And I want you to notice also in verse 8 that Mr. Manoah didn't shrug off his wife. She didn't shrug off the angel, and he didn't shrug off his wife. Now, angelic visions weren't all that much more common in that day than they are now. Sometimes we read the Bible, and there are a lot of miracles in the Bible, but we forget that this book covers like 4,000 years. And there were years and years and years where there seemed to be no miracles. And here's 40 years worth of God completely, uh, at least outwardly, seeming to forsake his people. And all of a sudden an angel shows up, or at least your wife comes running into the tent and says, Hey, I just saw an angel, and he said that we're going to have a baby. I was listening to uh, Paige Patterson, who's the president at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, preach about uh, this particular story and he said to this crowd of mostly men in the seminary men what would you do if your wife came home tomorrow and told you that she saw an angel and the angel said she was going to have a baby well if you think of it that way it's quite amazing that Manoah didn't shrug off his wife that he didn't say she's gone loony but that he also verse 8 believed he prayed He entreated the Lord. And he didn't say, Lord, I don't know if this is really true. Is she telling me the truth? Has she gone crazy? He just says, Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again. He believed. She believed. And the fact that they believed is underscored when the Lord does return in verse 12. And Manoah says to him, now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? 
He didn't say, now, if your words come to pass. He doesn't even do what Gideon did and say, can you show me a sign that this is going to come true? He just says, when this happens, what is he going to be like? What's our little boy going to be like? He believed what the angel said. In spite of the unlikely nature of the messenger, again, angels weren't any more common then, really, than they are now or in any other part of history. It was an odd thing. It was a startling thing. It was a strange thing to see and do. But in spite of the unlikely nature of this messenger, in spite of the fact that they might have thought their eyes or their minds are fooling themselves, they believed. And in spite of the unlikely nature of the promise, they believed. She didn't say, like Zechariah said about his wife in the New Testament, hey, she's barren. Come on. This isn't really going to happen. No, they just believed. They just trusted what God said. And it's a great encouragement to me that here are two normal people. We're not given any indication that they're super believers. They're just two normal people, just like you and just like me, who believed what God told them, even though it was hard to believe. And I read the Bible, and I find that there are some things that sometimes are just hard for me to believe. Not mentally, like I can't put science and this together necessarily, but sometimes just because my heart is cold. It's hard for me to believe when I read 1 Thessalonians 4.17. We're going to be caught up in the air? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem possible. It's hard to believe sometimes when you read James 5.14 that God simply says, hey, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church and let them come pray over you, anoint you with oil, and God, if they pray in faith, the prayer offered in faith will heal the one who's sick. That doesn't make sense. What does the oil have to do with anything we say? I don't know if I can believe that. And so we don't do it. Now, some of us do do that. But my point is we're tempted not to believe. It's hard to believe Luke 6.38 when Jesus says, Give and it will be given to you. It's counterintuitive. I'm going to give this money away and expect that this money is going to grow on trees or God's going to give it from somewhere. Well, that's what he says. It's hard to believe sometimes Romans 8.28 that we say all the time, All things, all things work together for good. I can't see how this thing is going to work together for anybody's good, God. Or maybe even for you, Acts 16.31 is hard to believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's it? That's all? I don't have to add anything to that? I don't have to really work hard and do well after I believe to make sure that He saves me? Just believe? It's hard to believe sometimes. And yet... Here are two people with natures just like ours, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, who knew that God was able to do far more abundantly than all that they could ask or think. And when God came with a promise that seemed totally out of this world, totally irrational, they believed. And I'm encouraged to do the same. So an unsought deliverance an unexpected visitor, an unbelievable promise. Now, before we go to the fourth uh, little episode, let me uh, just make a brief sidebar because in this encounter between the angel of the Lord and Manoah and his wife, there is this strange instruction about uh, the, the baby being a Nazarite from his birth. And we're going to come back to this in weeks to come, but I don't want to leave you hanging tonight going, you never said anything about the Nazarite. What does that mean? Is that like a Nazarene? What is a Nazarite? Well, the, the bottom and top of it is, and we'll come back to this next week, 
In Numbers chapter 6, just two books back from here, God had given instructions to the people of Israel who wanted, similar to our modern day fasting, who wanted to set themselves apart to the Lord for a season. Sometimes when there's something uh, tremendous that we need to pray about, we set ourselves apart to the Lord for a day of fasting or sometimes more than a day of fasting. Well, in the Old Testament, there was fasting, but there was also this way of setting yourself apart called the Nazarite vow that's described in number six. And basically what it was was this. If you became a Nazarite for a season, what you did was you committed yourself to total abstinence from alcoholic beverages, from great products of any kind. You uh, abstained from getting a haircut and you abstained from handling anything dead, whether it was a human or an animal. Now, those may seem like strange things. The Bible doesn't explain to us why these particular things. When you read the rest of the Bible, none of these things are forbidden in general. So we don't really know why God said do these particular things, abstain from these particular things, but we know that he did. And we know that he did, and he said, if you would do this, you would be setting yourself aside to me. Now, That's the Nazarite vow. And according to verses 5 and 7, God, as he always has the right to do, made Samson's Nazarite vow for him. Before Samson was ever born, before Samson had a chance to say, hey, I want to be a Nazarite, God simply said he's going to be a Nazarite from the womb. And so, Mrs. Manoah, you need to make sure that he doesn't get his hair cut. You need to make sure he doesn't eat anything that has to do with grapes. You need to make sure that he abstains from alcohol And so on. And this list of regulations is repeated three times in this chapter. In verse 4, the angel says it to Manoah's wife. In verse 7, Manoah's wife says it to her husband. And then in verse 14, the angel says it to Manoah. Three times the terms of the Nazarite vow are repeated. And it's also said that Mrs. Manoah is to keep herself from the fruit of the vine, while she's pregnant as well, so as not to contaminate her son. Now, we don't have time, again, to pause and think about this in more detail here. But what I want you to do is just file this away. File away in your mind that the Nazarite vow is going to be important in this story. And file away in your mind that it's not insignificant that God repeated the terms three times in this story. So that... Samson's parents surely knew what he was supposed to do and probably surely passed on to him what he was supposed to do. That's going to be important in weeks to come, but for now we need to dash on. So an unsought deliverance we've seen, an unexpected visitor, an unbelievable promise. Fourthly, an undone worshiper. An undone worshiper. Read what happened to Manoah and his wife when they saw that this was the angel of the Lord. Verse 20, It came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die. For we have seen God. 
So here Manoah is. He's having this conversation with this person. He's starting to realize this is no ordinary person. And then in verse 20, he and his wife realize this is really no ordinary person. And they fall to the ground. And then the whole thing ends. And they apparently go on living for a few days or weeks or months. And this guy never comes back. And maybe they ask their neighbors, hey, did you see the guy that came through here? He was wearing such and such. And no, we never saw him. And they start to realize, oh, it wasn't a man that came through here. It was God himself. And when Manoah realized that he had seen God face to face, his response in verse 22 was to say, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man because I've seen God. It's the same response that we see from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah. It's a much more famous passage probably when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up on his throne in Isaiah 6. He says, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Both of them say the same thing. It's over for me. I'm a dead man. I'm a sinner. And look at this holy God that I've come face to face with. It's over for me. I'm going to die. Both the response of Manoah and the response of Isaiah, I want to point out to you, are the appropriate initial response. The appropriate initial response when we see how holy and how righteous God is and how unholy and unrighteous we are, the appropriate initial response is to tremble with fear and to realize that we deserve in the light of God's holiness, in the light of our unholiness, to die. Manoah and Isaiah show us this. Now, both of them were men of faith. I want you to see that. We've already seen that Manoah was a man of faith, and so was Isaiah. But they trembled in the presence of the Lord. Now, by God's grace, neither one of them trembled forever. For when you read the story of Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 7 of Isaiah, After he says, woe is me, I'm a dead man. An angel comes to the altar, takes a coal and touches his lip with this coal from the altar. The altar symbolizing the blood sacrifice that Christ would make for us. And he touches the coal to Isaiah's lip as if to say, I'm going to apply what Jesus is going to do to your life. And he says to him, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And Isaiah went from fear to forgiveness there in Isaiah 6. And Manoah does the same thing. Here in verse 23, we find that like they often do, his wife talks some sense into him. She says to him, listen, you think you're going to die? And she doesn't dispute that he and she both deserve to die. But she says to us, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. And he wouldn't have told us what he told us and he wouldn't have shown us what he sh- showed us. So, We deserve to die, but God must be merciful to us. He would have killed us already by now. So both Isaiah and Manoah moved from fear to forgiveness, and so must we. I just wanted to point out that Manoah's response in verse 22, we will surely die for we have seen God, is a reminder to us that the fear of God, when it's an appropriate fear of God, is healthy. It's right. If you're never frightened in the presence of God, if you never realize how big he is and how small you are, how holy he is and how sinful you are, if you never realize those things, 
then the fact that God's holiness is tempered by his unbelievable mercy won't mean very much to you, will it? Mercy doesn't seem like mercy until you realize how bad it really is. That's why Jesus says, He who loves much is the one who's forgiven much. But he who loves little is the one who's forgiven little. It's not to say that people, uh, some people are, are really bad and some people aren't so bad. It's to say those who really realize how bad their sins are and how holy God is, those people love God more than the people who just see a little bit of their sin. So the good news will never seem really good until the bad news feels really bad. There are implications in that for evangelism. When you share the gospel with your coworkers, your family, your friends, your classmates, your neighbors, if you simply tell them the good news, that's good. They need to hear the good news of Jesus, but the good news to them won't seem like a big deal. It may not even make sense to them if they don't know the bad news. So you have to start, as we've been saying when we've talked about evangelism, you have to start by explaining God to them. How he made them and he loves them and he owns them and they ought to honor him and how good he is to us every day of our lives and then show them, even though God has been this good to us and shown himself to us, look at how we live. And perhaps if God's spirit works, they will say the same thing Manoah said, we'll surely die. And if they can say we will surely die, then now they're ready to hear the gospel. It's important that people know the bad news in addition to and often usually before they know the good news. There are also some personal implications. It's not just as we share with others, but as we think about ourselves that this particular truth is important. In a crowd like this, most of us, I think, have believed, but it's possible that some of us haven't, or or at least uh, we're not sure if we have, or maybe we're trying to convince ourselves that we have. And if you're in that spot, the truth may be that perhaps you haven't been able to really embrace the good news. You haven't been able really to lay hold of the good news because you've never really been afraid of the bad news. So you need to come to a place where you're sitting side by side with Manoah in verse 22. You need to remember that he was right. We ought to die. We ought to die. And then you need to also remember that his wife was equally right. When she said, if God wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted the offering and shown us these things and told us these things. If God wanted to kill you, if it was his delight to to damn you, he wouldn't have tonight and in years gone by in your life shown you Christ and told you of Christ. And if it was God's delight simply to damn you, He wouldn't have accepted the offering that Christ made. If He wanted to kill us, He wouldn't have brought us to hear the Gospel again and again and again like He has. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But the wicked escape death when they realize that they are wicked and that they deserve it and that God has been more merciful than they ever knew He would be in Jesus. So we have an undone worshiper and He teaches us something. Finally, what we have here in Judges 13 is an unfulfilling story. An unfulfilling story. Now that's not to say there isn't great encouragement in this chapter. We wouldn't have spent the whole night on it if there weren't. I hope that you found some already tonight. 
But it is an unfulfilling story in the sense that if we are looking for somewhere to really rest our heads, if we are coming tonight looking for spiritual food and bread that will satisfy us forever, that will really satisfy our souls, we can't find that ultimately here in Judges 13, can we? It's a wonderful chapter. It's a wonderful story. It's wonderfully true that the woman in verse 24 did give birth to this son. God did fulfill his promise and God did show his mercy to this lady. And it's wonderfully true, too, that the child grew up and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in verse 25. And as we read on, we'll find that the spirit of the Lord stirred him so that he did deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He delivered them. But he only delivered them temporarily. He only delivered them from the Philistines. He couldn't save them from death. And he only delivered them temporarily. We read at the end of Samson's story in chapter 16, verse 31, that Samson delivered Israel and was the judge for 20 years. So for 20 years, the people of Israel had it great because Samson was fighting their battles for them. But it was only a temporary deliverance. And it was only a temporal deliverance, a deliverance for the here and now. But if we're looking beyond simply wanting to have blessings here and now, if we want rest for our souls, if we want forgiveness for our sins, if we want hope for eternity, we can't find answers in a man named Samson. God worked wonderfully in this child born to Manoah and his wife. We don't discount that, but Samson can't do anything for us. Save, point us forward. And so if we come to these Old Testament stories and these Old Testament characters looking for the kickstart that we need, looking for ultimate answers, looking for heroes in the Bible, we're going to leave unfulfilled. As you know, that is not what stories like this one are here for. Because, you see, the greatest story of unsought deliverance didn't begin in a little town called Zorah. It began in the little town of Bethlehem. And the most unexpected visitor who brought the best news was not the angel of the Lord who appeared to Manoah's wife, but the angel Gabriel who appeared to a young girl named Mary and said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you and you shall give birth to a son and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from not the Philistines, but from their sins. And the most unbelievable news that God ever gave to his people was not that a barren woman would give birth to a son, but Isaiah 14, that the virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew tells us means God with us. And the most undone worshiper is not the person who simply had his knees knock before the angel of the Lord. The most undone worshiper is the one who has kneeled at the foot of the cross where he sees perfectly both God's holiness and God's love. There's striking similarity between the story of Samson's birth and the birth of Jesus. And that similarity ought to remind us as we come to this story that God is working and always has been working all of human history to point us to His Son. That's why this story is here. God, in a miraculous way, this is a miraculous story. A barren woman has a child. In a miraculous way, God sent Samson as a deliverer 
to get Israel ready for the miraculous way in which he was going to send Jesus, who is the deliverer. And we, who observe all these things in retrospect, ought to see Jesus even more clearly in passages and stories like this. We need to see him because we, like the Israelites in verse 1, have done evil in the sight of the Lord. And when we realize this, when we stand in the shadow of God's holiness, we, like Manoah, are undone. We realize that we're dead. But we also know, because we see in retrospect, that God has sent us unsought deliverance. Before we were ever born, God sent His Son to be our deliverer. Before we ever trembled at our sin, God had paid for it. Before we knew that we needed to call on the name of the Lord, or even what His name was, He was calling our name and drawing us to Himself and offering us an unbelievable promise. Not the promise of a son, but a Savior. Not the promise of a Nazarite, but a Nazarene who died for us. Not deliverance from the Philistines, but deliverance from eternal destruction. And we, like Manoah and his wife, simple people though we are, must just believe. Just believe. Not merely in the promise that God makes, but in the person that He has sent. Do you believe? Have you embraced Jesus as your deliverer? Then when you hear a story about a deliverer like Samson, as great a man as he was, as great a deliverance as he brought, as an encouraging a story as his birth is, you will look beyond him and see Jesus. And you will say with the prophet Isaiah, not simply, woe is me, I'm undone. But you'll also say with the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, for unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is given. There will be no end to the increase of his government. It won't just last 20 years. There will be no end of it or of peace. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful.